Hey there, thank you for listening to the Retire Ready To Podcast. I am your host, Renee Collins, CPA Financial Planner, and my goal is to bring to the table conversations around money that we wish we had when we were growing up, to share stories that will educate and uplift and inspire you to want to save more, invest smart, and build wealth. And not just for today, but for the next generation as well. Because we all deserve to live a life that is full and abundant. I am excited to have today's guest on the show because she speaks to my curiosity, and that is the psychology of money. Why we do what we do with our money. She is the first financial therapist in Michigan and talks about money in a way that does not make you feel gross. She holds a master's degree in social work from the University of Michigan and a bachelor's degree in sociology from Michigan State University. She has a certificate in financial social work. She's a certified financial therapist and an author of the Financial Anxiety Solution. Her works have been featured in Self, Fast Company, HuffPost, Time, and that is just to name a few. So I am so excited today to bring you Lindsay Brian Hodgson. Hi there, Lindsay. How are you? Hey, Renee. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for agreeing to be on the show today. So, Lindsay, what I'd like to do is just start off by having you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself. I did mention your business because I'd like Mm -hmm. for you to talk a little bit about your business as well and then help us understand what is a financial therapist. Of course. So my business is called Mind Money Balance. I'm a financial therapist in private practice, as you mentioned. So a financial therapist is exactly what it sounds like, but I do think it's important to break down what is and what isn't a financial therapist. So in my opinion, a financial therapist is somebody who's already a practicing therapist. So they're either a psychologist, a clinical social worker, a licensed counselor, or marriage and family therapist, and they have a specialty or specialized training in the psychological side of money. Just like you could go to a therapist who specializes in something like divorce or grief or child care, you can find a therapist who specializes in financial therapy. And so that's kind of where a financial therapist lives, is the intersection of mental and emotional health and how we think and feel about money. And so in my work as a financial therapist, I'm less of a how-to-make-a-budget type of person and much more What's getting in the way of you being able to talk about money? Why is it so hard for you to talk to your partner about money or to negotiate a raise at work or to talk to your adult kids about, hey, mom's not going to be supporting you any longer? What is on the emotional side of our finances? And that's really the type of work that I love to do. And as you shared in my bio, Renee, I think a lot of money education today is sadly very shame-based. It's your fault you don't understand more. It's your fault that you have debt or that you have credit cards or anything like that. And we know from a psychological and social work perspective that it's this carrot or stick approach. And most of personal finance has been very stick-based. It's your fault. I'm going to be angry at you. I'm going to blame you. I'm going to shame you. But we know that the carrot approach works much better. And that's really what I aim to do in my work is help people understand 
what motivates them, what drives them, how can they extend to themselves compassion and empathy so that they can cultivate a healthy relationship with living. Absolutely. That sounds wonderful. Well, let me ask you, how would a person know that they need to see a financial therapist? Are there signs? Yeah, really good question. So definitely. So I like to think of financial therapy as being for people who have maybe tried the traditional personal finance route. They've got somebody like you on their team, but they just can't seem to follow through. So they get an amazing financial plan from somebody, but it's just hard to stick to. Or they're on the cusp of a big life change. They're about to get married, about to have a baby, about to get divorced, about to be an empty nester. And they're struggling with, what do I do now? What does my relationship with money look like now? And if somebody is going, Lindsay, I don't even know what those things mean. Let me give you some more concrete signs. If you struggle to look at your paycheck when it is deposited, if you worry about retirement so much so that you can't even imagine logging into your retirement plan, those are some signs or some warnings that it could be time to get a financial therapist on board. You've tried reading personal finance books. You've listened to the finance podcasts. You've maybe hired a financial planner or a CPA, and you're still feeling like, ah, I just can't make forward momentum. I just feel awkward, uncomfortable, or anxious around money. That could be a sign that a financial therapist could make sense. Absolutely. And I think that's really important, too, because I know a lot of people will go out to the internet and they'll do the research and they'll figure out the budget and they'll try a number of different budgets, zero base, the 50, 30, 20, all of these mm -hmm. different mm -hmm. budgets, and it just doesn't work for them. One of the things that I think it's very important too, and you do bring this up in the book as well, is understanding the money stories, yeah. how our stories around money impact our relationship with our money. I don't think we really think about this very much because we're so busy. We're distracted. We're taking care of our families and we're working and we just don't really take the time to think about how and why we have the relationships we do with money. Can you share your money story? Do you mind sharing your story? <laughs> sure, <Is> there... <laughs> sure. Yeah. So a money story is again what it sounds like. We do not, you know, just turn 18 and happen to know everything about money. No, 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 no. We right. learn about money as children. And what the research shows is that most of us, by the time we're about eight years old, more or less have decided what we think we are allowed to do with money. And so if we think about being adults and having an inner eight-year-old making those financial decisions, it makes sense why so many of us make decisions that might not be the best to be gentle. So my money story is that I grew up quite financially privileged in that I grew up in a household where things could have gone an entirely different way. So my mom got pregnant with me in high school and she was able to live with my grandparents and I was able to live with them for the first four-ish years of my life. And she had that familial support. They allowed her to stay in their home. They helped with caregiving when she was in school for nursing and she went on to become a nurse. My biological father did not raise me. My mom remarried a man who was a physician. And we moved from the Detroit area into 
the rural thumb of Michigan because my adoptive dad got a job there in rural healthcare. So we had this really interesting thing happen where we had high income and low cost of living. And my mom was very transparent with myself and my sisters. I'm the oldest of five. She always said to us, Lindsay, we have so much financial privilege and so many blessings. Like this is not really real in that we were in this really interesting situation. And she was really good about telling me, not in a shame-based way, but just how fortunate we needed to be. She was also really good about narrating what was going on financially. Anytime we were in line at the bank, you know, this is in the days when they had the letter boards up on there. And you could see like a CD rate. And I would say like, what is a CD? You know, and it was not the compact disc. And she would tell me about what CDs were and she would narrate when she was depositing a paycheck. And anytime we got money as kids, we had to go to the bank and put a percentage of it away. So I had a money story of, we are very fortunate, count your blessings and be wise about it. And also recognize how close our lives are to having been very different, right? Had my grandparents not said, oh, come live with us, that would have been a very different story to have a 17 or 18-year-old single parent on their own trying to make ends meet. She was very clear that we were very fortunate to have the familial support that we had. And my grandfather, her father, was incredibly poor. He ran away from home before he was even a teenager so that he could get a job and start working and lied on his job application about his age so that he could get a job working in a restaurant. And so he was able to get some scholarships for college. And so his money story was always, if you can find an education and a way to fund your education, you'll be financially stable. Education's important. Count your blessings and also acknowledge when and where and how you have privileges. Those were some of the big things that came up for me as a kid and carry on to this day. Absolutely. And I think that that's really important because I think a lot of the clients that I work with, they don't necessarily have those stories where they had those conversations around the dinner table is what I like to call them. Mm-hmm. And, it was, and so a lot of them are learning about their money as they go. Even in my story, I am a financial professional and I always tell people long before I had any letters behind my name, I learned about money through trial and fire. (laughs) (laughs) Because of that, I think a lot of times people have shame around the way that they've managed their money because they feel like I should have known better, right? And when I'm talking to clients, I try to let them know that what they're feeling, it's actually natural and we can't beat ourselves up because as you grow and you learn more and more about money, you have an opportunity to change where you are today. But it does start with awareness. And that's why I like to have that discussion and bring in that discussion about the money story because it helps people to understand the why. Why did I make those type of decisions? Why do I have the relationship that I have with money today? Mm -hmm. And what I would like for you to help people understand is how can they get rid of some of that shame around the way they feel about their money? Because of, you know, maybe 
some experiences that they had growing up or whatever reason. But a lot of people have shame around the financial decisions that they made. Yeah. Oh, I love this question, Renee, because I think so many of us carry money shame. And just a quick preface on money shame. Money shame is so painful for us because it is internal, meaning guilt and shame are words that we use interchangeably in our language, but they actually mean different things. So guilt is external. I made a mistake. Shame is internal. I am a mistake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when we think about money shame, it is internalizing our mistakes. Instead of, oh, I made a mistake with money, it becomes, oh, I'm bad with money. Or as some of those other hints that you gave, I should have known better. What's wrong with me? How could I have done this? Right? A lot of that self-judgment and self-wounding language that we use. So oftentimes when it comes to shame, the first step is to externalize it a little. Instead of, oh, I'm bad at money, maybe take a step back and go, I made a mistake. I was 18 years old and I took out, you know, a big old credit card line of credit and I didn't really know what it meant. Of course I maxed it out. I didn't have anyone to tell me what an interest rate was. I didn't understand the payment terms. I made a mistake. And taking that first step and pushing that shame away from being, I'm bad with money, I have debt, to, oh, I made a mistake when I was 18. It's not the end of the world. I can extend some compassion and forgiveness to my younger self. And the other thing with with this money shame is just understanding that most of us make decisions with money because of A, the, the information that we currently have, and then also B, as a way of keeping safe. So to stay on this credit card example, it could have been that there were no other ways that that 18-year-old kiddo could make their financial ends meet except for, oh, somebody came along with a $1,000 line of credit. Now I can go buy my groceries. Now I can go put gas in my tank. Yes, in the long run, that might not have been the wisest financial decision, but in the short term, it afforded that person the ability to eat, the ability to get to and from their job or to and from class or whatever it was that they were doing. So when we experience money shame, can we extend a little bit of forgiveness or understanding to that behavior that happened in that moment? Now, fast forward, you could say like, well, Lindsay, I wasn't 18 when I made a money mistake. I was 45. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to being an adult yeah. in mistakes. So one right now that I'm hearing a lot of like shame and embarrassment, not even embarrassment, but like shame around is like, oh my gosh, I got a mortgage when the interest rate was at 5% when if I could have bought a home two years ago, it would have been at 2.5%. Well, here's the thing. We can't rewind time. None of us, unless you know something I don't, Renee, have the capacity. No. <laughs> So instead of going, oh, I can't believe I got this 5% interest rate. What's wrong with me? We could say, what is that mortgage affording you? Oh, it's affording me the ability to have a consistent payment every single month. It's affording me the ability to have security and stability in a house that I own. It is affording me the ability to have some predictability around where I go to sleep at night. I don't have to worry about a landlord all of a sudden changing the lease terms on me or the rent on me. I have some potential security and stability here. And for that, I'm grateful. So acknowledging, kind of pushing away that internal external is step one. And then step two is just honoring and understanding that you did what you did for a reason. And we all try whatever we can to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe. And sometimes that means you're going to make a money mistake on the way. Right. Absolutely. And I I agree. And one of the things that I want to just add to that is because I work with a lot of clients that they're in their 40s, 
couple things that I see. One is that procrastination is that mm-hmm. many of them, they may have started saving a little bit in their retirement plan, but not a lot. And so they're still kind of dragging their feet a little bit. And I think it's because they're not really comfortable with the market, you know, and yeah. some of them is, you know, it's just that, that fear of that uncertainty, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I see in practice is student loans. A lot of my clients have the student loans and they do have those same feelings around the same feelings that you described with the mortgage. They mm-hmm. have that around the student loans. Why did I take out these loans? And they feel some guilt around that. How do you address things like that? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. It's one of those things that takes time. So to acknowledge why you did what you did for example, in the, in the student loan example, again, you're probably 18, 19, 20 years old making a huge financial decision. And it's not about saying like, oh, I'm going to let myself off the hook and blame somebody else. But it is about saying, I was 18, 19, 20 years old. I did the best I could with the knowledge that I had. And everywhere I looked, my friends were saying, get a loan, go to school. Right. This is what you do, right? Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of ear reinforcement. A lot of our parents told us, you know, as I mentioned in my money story, education is your ticket to stability and security. So a lot of us were just doing what we were told. We were promised, take out this loan, get this education, and you'll be safe. But we didn't really realize that the longer term consequences of that. Now, in terms of the retirement fears and the retirement guilt around investing, the other thing I find that comes up with people is that they have in their head a version of retirement that is, you know, like a stock photo of a person in retirement. They're like sitting on a beach with a, you know, fruity cocktail in their hand and they're staring off into the sunset. But exactly. people don't realize that retirement is is not an age, right? You and I know yes. retirement is a number that gives you the permission to say, oh, work is optional So if we can remind our clients who are in their 40s and they're getting closer to 50 or they're in their early 50s, that retirement is not when you turn 67 and a half. Retirement is personalized to you, which is an amount of money that is invested or in savings that says, oh, cool, now you get to be work optional. And I think that slight reframe can help people. Like, what would you do with your life if work was optional? What would you do if you could work 10 hours a week instead of 40 or would you work or wouldn't you work? Would you stay where you are? Would you go? Would you downsize? Would you move abroad? I think inviting in some fun and excitement because for so many of us, the biggest part of our identity is what do you do for a living, right? Anytime you go to a barbecue, you meet new people, the first thing they say after what's your name (laughs) is, well, what do you do? And so I think it can be really helpful to inject some creativity into what is my life if work was optional. And sometimes that can then help people to get more comfortable with the idea of investing for their future or saving more aggressively for their future. Absolutely. I agree. And I think having a plan that adds some clarity to Mm -hmm. the future is very helpful. Now, I'm going to definitely let everyone know about your wonderful book. (laughs) Reading it. Thank you. And as we enter into these holidays, I think that financial anxiety probably heightens. Can we talk a little bit about financial anxiety? And can you even provide 
some tips to our listeners on how can we manage that? Totally. So financial anxiety is something that most of us experience, and it is feeling nervous, worried, or on edge when it comes to our money. So I imagine most of your listeners did the little like, oh, that's me. I've been there. We all have and we all will again because financial anxiety is not something that is solved by your net worth or how much money you make. It is much more of a feeling. And so when it comes to how we feel about money around the holidays, a lot of it is on these external expectations of what we should or shouldn't be doing around money, right? So, oh my gosh, I bought my nephew a gift and he's bringing his friend. So shoot, I better buy him a gift too. Exactly. Or I'm showing up to this holiday party last minute. I better go stop and grab a bottle of wine. I don't want to show up empty handed, right? Mm -hmm. It's all of these little unexpected things because we think that the holidays are about being generous and they can be. But we can express generosity in so many more ways than in purchasing something and putting a bow on it. So I invite people to think about when you think about the holidays, what really matters to you? And a great question to ask yourself is, what did my uncle give me last Christmas or last Hanukkah? If you can't remember, (laughs) there's that's a good indication that the gift didn't matter. But you might remember sitting around a fireplace with them and like laughing until your stomach hurt. Those, in my opinion, are probably more important than whatever was in that stocking or went along with that Hanukkah gift, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking about what are the things that we want to cultivate in holidays? What are the memories that we want to create? What are the things that really matter to us? And how can we separate it a little bit from gift giving? And if gift giving is absolutely your love language and you're like, Lindsay, I, I'm bringing gifts, I don't care. That's fine. But then I also invite you to think about what are ways that you can do it that is going to be financially feasible for you. Because a lot of people are really good at justifying overspending during the holidays because right. they do exactly that. Oh, the holidays, tis the season. Right. Well, then January 2nd comes and your credit card bill comes and you're like, oh, shoot. Here we go again. Right. Thinking creatively about, you know, what are some things that would really matter to the people that I want to share my gifts with? So for me, I'm a big baker. So that usually means that I'm bringing baked goods to people. Mm -hmm. For other people, I have friends who are amazing artists. And so they'll do, I had a friend who did watercolor three by five cards. And they were just gorgeous, beautiful Mm -hmm. little things. And it's so much more meaningful then a box of chocolates, half of them are stale and half of them, you don't really like the flavors, you know? So just thinking a little bit more about the meaning rather than the the dollar amount of the gift. Right. I agree. I agree. I think that for me and our family, most of us, we're adults. So we don't have too many kids in the family. We have maybe, I think, one kid that's like under 18, you know? Yeah, so yeah. we just got away from doing a lot of the gift giving, you know, we may get something small. We always get something from my mom. But I think what's most important to us is just really spending the holiday together. Mm-hmm. It's the experience being together, sharing, you know, just the old memories, just being able to be grateful in the moment. I know that's one of the things that I share with my clients as well is, is try to practice gratitude Because we have so much to be grateful for, you know, Mm -hmm. and if we can get to that place rather than spending 
more money than we can really afford, especially with the holidays. Everything is getting so much more higher. The cost of everything is just unbelievable. You know, I'm telling my clients, rather than stressing over that, look at ways that you can reduce the budget. If that means also having conversations with your family and your kids, if it's doing potluck, find a way to reduce some of that anxiety, put budgets in place. And again, the plan. Having the plan is really important. So Mm -hmm. I think that that's also a really big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, because stress can also manifest itself in your body. Absolutely. (laughs) We want to get away from that, especially for the holidays. Well, this has been awesome, Lindsay. Thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your words of wisdom, especially as we go into the holidays and I hope that the listeners got some great tidbits that they could start to think about, you know, their money, maybe a little bit different. I'm always trying to just promote awareness. It's being aware of where, you know, the money is going and then understanding our stories because it's our stories that bring us back to this place of how we manage our money today. So your knowledge and your expertise has been wonderful. So I want to thank you for that. And then if you can tell our listeners, Where can they find you on social media? How can they get a copy of your wonderful book? Well, first, my pleasure being here. I loved having this conversation. Thank you for sharing your platform with me. You can find me anywhere under my business name, which is Mind Money Balance. My podcast, my Instagram handle, my website are all of the same name. And in terms of my book, The Financial Anxiety Solution, I invite you to call your local bookstore and have them order a copy of it. That way, your money can kind of stay in your local community and we can close independent bookstores. So that's my favorite way for you to get the book. But you can you can always grab it on that big website that we all know that sells books too. <laughs> yes, I love that. I love that. Keep the money in the community. I love that, Lindsay. Thank you oh, so thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Renee. Okay, you take care now. Hey there, listeners. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that you learned something new or that you were inspired. And if so, please share it with your friends and your family. And don't forget to provide us with a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. As always, thank you for your time. And remember that building wealth, it is more about spending less and investing the rest. Until next time, go be great today.